on his tea. How are you? Welcome to the Candlelit Tales podcast. Uh, we are sitting down for a special spooky Halloween episode uh, where we have the great privilege of uh, having a guest, Anthony Murphy of Mythical Ireland, here to talk to us. Uh, so thanks so much for joining us, Anthony. It's lovely to have you. Thank you for inviting me. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, Anthony, we're uh, very excited to talk to you today because uh, during lockdown, I got completely swept away with all of your live streams that you're doing uh, or were doing uh, and started and doing a schedule one and talking and, and reaching out to people all over the globe. And you had a fantastic um, uh, group kind of culminated over lockdown that I, I tapped into and listened into for quite a while. So excited to hear that. And uh, yeah, do you want to tell us a little bit about the origins of Mythical Ireland and what, what you guys do over there? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, Mythical Ireland is really sort of a one man organization, if such thing could even. I mean, that that's a misnomer in itself. A one man organization, one person organization dedicated to the dissemination of information pertaining to Ireland's ancient past. So, you know, concentrating largely on prehistory, pre-Christianity, concentrating on largely on archaeology and mythology and folklore. Uh, with uh, a, a distinct sort of astronomical cosmological theme in there as well. Um, I had uh, begun research with Richard Moore uh, in 1999 um, for what would eventually become Island of the Setting Sun in 2006. Mm -hmm. But in the year 2000, I decided, you know, the fledgling internet was there. And uh, I decided to set up a website to, to share some of the information, some of the photography as a means of sort of getting that out there because we knew that if we were going to do a book, it was a long way away. So in March, I think it was March the 16th, the day before St. Patrick's Day to, uh, in the year 2000, Mythical wow. Ireland became a thing. Oh. It, it originally, it was hosted on, I don't know if you remember GeoCities. GeoCities was like a, a free, where you could build your own free website. So it was geocities.com forward slash, I think, mythical underscore Ireland is where <laughs> it started. And I think it was a year or so before it got its own dot com. Right. Know, yeah, yeah. Oisin will definitely remember that and be able to <laughs> link with you. Well, in yeah. fairness, I, I've been always blown away by the photographs uh, that you put up of the ancient sites specifically like going up to Tara or when your uh, shots of Newgrange are beautiful. So you're, you're, you prim did you primarily focus on images or was it more the literature that you were always drawn towards? Well, to be, to be honest, um, it was only after the website had been going for a while, maybe a year, maybe a little bit longer. The feedback was that this is a very good combination of words and images. I think it was actually a good mixture of both. And I now realize, I suppose as a journalist, you kind of always realize these things because we were taught when I, when I was a cub reporter, when I was a young, young whippersnapper, um, one of the things you'd always be taught by your editors was when you're getting a story or when you're interviewing somebody, it's very important to get a, a photograph mm. of the person or, you know, whatever they're talking about. Um, the photograph helps sort of draw you into the story. So Mythical Ireland became this very uh, visual thing that later was augmented by video content and later again by, you know, drone imagery and drone uh, video footage. Um, and when I was putting together the proposal for publishers for Island of the Setting Sun, one of the things I was very conscious of was, was, was making the proposal like the website full of colour rich imagery, 
and full of hopefully uh, lucid um, lyrical prose. And one of the things that Liffey Press said to me when they read it was, if you can produce a book that looks and feels like this proposal, it'll do very well. Uh, and Ireland actually turned out to be the first full colour publication that Liffey Press ever published. So, yeah, it was definitely, I hope that's a short enough answer for a question, but it was definitely yeah. a mixture of words and imagery. I think uh, it, 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 we'll, we'll probably talk about Drone Hinge at some point, but mm. the reason this Drone Hinge story went all around the world was because it had images, you know, these really fabulously stark images to show people what had been discovered. And I think without that, the story wouldn't have travelled. Because yeah. people would have to, in their minds, try to picture what was there, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. It's so, it's, it's interesting to have a visual kind of, uh, I guess, open up that kind of mysticism and the, and the mythical sense of, the, of things, you know, because you get so much in Ireland when you go back to the old sites and just, just images alone can kind of transport you into some form of uh, linking in what we've written. And that's sometimes why we, we, we add in music as an atmospheric kind of stimulus, yeah. I guess, you relied on the imagery, which is interesting. I think whatever it is, myths need a bit of sauce or a bit of sprinkle of something to get you in there, whether well, it's, it's an image or a bit of music. It <laughs> because Richard Moore, who was the art, who's an artist, and he's, you know, we're still good friends all these years later. Richard uh, was very unusual as an artist in that he would regularly be out painting at nighttime and he would paint monuments at night time as well as streetscapes and how he did this was it was a very simple mechanism he had a big jar with a big candle in it and he lit the candle and it was kept from the wind you know from blowing out and it was enough to cast light on his easel to do what he was doing and uh, it was really Richard sort of sparked my interest in what we call painting with light you know so I started taking photographs at twilight and at nighttime using torches and candles and, and all flashes you know all sorts of lighting sources to light monuments and what was happening was that we were getting entirely new pictures because this was the birth of the digital age I mean I only started using digital cameras in 2004 so the first few years of Mythical Ireland, I was taking pictures on print and slide film and getting them scanned and getting them onto CDs, loading them onto the computer, bringing them up in photos. You know, That's right, kids. That happened. That was how, long ago. how it was. I know, you know, and you lost all the quality and everything else. Um, but uh, the digital helped to revolutionize it, too, because you could see immediately the result of your efforts. You didn't have to wait till next day to get them back from the photo lab and you could adjust accordingly. And so you, you learn very quickly with the digital how to, oh, yeah, that's good, but I need to light this side more. And you'd spend time making sure you got the right one. And I think mm -hmm. those images, as you say, said, they, they sort of carried a sense of a, a mystical aspect of the sites. Mm -hmm. They brought this nuministic sort of appeal you know, if you pulled up at, at Newgrange, well, Newgrange is lit, but not very well. If you pulled up at Douth at night, all you'd see is a dark, you yeah. know, mound. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But if you could use flashes and torches and light up the stones and the, and the sycamore tree, it, you could suddenly create a very, very different type of image. And it really draws you in. And it really says to you, actually, I think, you know, this is a place, this is a, a place of other world. And so mm -hmm. we've demonstrated how you know with a little bit of imagination this is how 
the monument can come across. And so if you extend that to the myths about the monuments, it has the same result, I think, you know. Mm. Well, I think that's a nice little segue into what we're here to talk about, which is kind of shining a light on the superstitions of the stories that we've just released this month in our uh, Samhain stories, which is always funny for me because it's like the lead up to Samhain as is November. So I'm like, we always do Samhain stories in October, but it's actually for next I month. I know, it's always arse ways, <laughs> but listen. Um... But switching back around, not to be arse ways and to get the front on backwards, the backwards on front. We're talking about the little man first. And this is, again, a story that has become kind of wildly globally recognized, um, kind of. Sarah, could you want to tell us a little bit about the where you got the sources of the little man and what it alludes to? Yeah, well, the the two stories that I told in this series, actually, I both got them out of this book, which happens to be beside me, which I actually didn't plan. I never do, do this. Never do it's this. Um, never the do Book this. of Fairy and Folk Tales of Ireland, compiled by W.B. Yeats. And I think we've mentioned Yeats on the podcast before, and I have a little bit of a little bit of a hmm, relationship with Yeats and his work and him as a person. Uh, I'm not his biggest fan, but um, no, I, okay. I did dip into uh, we, we don't need to get into it. I did dip into this particular book of folk and fairy tales because uh, there's, there's there's a lot of them. Um, he's got a lot of kind of borderline offensive dialect retellings of, you know, sightings of the Banshee by, you know, peasants who are speaking in this real stage Irish brogue, which is I terrible um sorry i said i wasn't going to get into it i mean i listen i just fundamentally think he was a man who liked who who had a romanticized ideal of the peasantry and really didn't like poor people um and and i have a problem with that um nutshell so that's actually pretty concise fairness what i was thank you <laughs> i haven't been thinking about it at all for the no. last couple of weeks while i've been reading his fucking books um <laughs> uh so this one the the because when myself and Aaron were talking about this we had the changeling story we knew we wanted to do the changeling story that he did this series and then I kind of was riffing off well what are the most iconic Irish like creatures and the things that popped into my head immediately were leprechauns and banshees especially in terms of ones that we haven't talked about on our podcast before sure and so starting off with the leprechaun the, f- the first thing that strikes you about the leprechaun is that there aren't really any leprechaun stories in Irish in, in, in Irish folklore. So this is a story of a little man who is not a leprechaun, but I think of a similar kind. And a, he's a little bit uh, dark and he, he takes this character, uh, this kind of drunken Irish man around the countryside, raiding the wine cellars of all of the gentry and flying around on magical steeds. Um, and then... Which is which is all good fun until they finally get to the night where he says, "Okay, tonight I'm going to steal a wife and and tells him about this plan to steal a a 19 year old bride from her wedding feast. So the two of them hide up in the rafters. And if she sneezes three times and no one says, bless you, he gets to take her and keep her. And due to circumstances, she sneezes twice and no one says, bless you. And when she sneezes the third time. The hero of the story is a, like has an attack of remorse and calls out bless you and foils the little man's plan and is like released from his service. 
um and you know gets to gets to be around humans again instead of sitting in wine cellars getting drunk every single night without fail which I think wears off pretty quickly as a charming idea uh so yeah essentially just to kind of give you the summary of the story there in a bit more detail than I meant to but um this is this is a story about kind of a leprechaun because I couldn't really find a proper story about a leprechaun. <laughs> well, it, it's it's the crossover. And, and uh, Anthony, I'd love to get your opinion on this. But I see the little man as like this crossover junction from where like the Tuae de Danon and the great Irish, you know, the gods of Irish mythology kind of collide with uh, a religious island that has been, kind of, uh, um, you know, pushed those beliefs into pagan and reduced them into the, the little people they've become smaller in stature and belittled as a kind of a as an ideology and a, and a belief system and so they become these trickster beings which then hop skips and jumps its way onto Walt Disney's page and he comes up with the leprechaun <laughs> that gets fed back to us in our folk beliefs and then suddenly there's just this kind of mixture of stuff going on with with the little man but um yeah what what's your take on on the little man or the leprechaun it's an interest very interesting uh, and that is a very interesting take on leprechaun or the little man um a few years after mythical ireland had begun i remember a friend of mine a colleague of mine who was also a friend uh, said to me one day what's mythical ireland about and as i was explaining it to him he said so it's about leprechauns <laughs> no and he was taking the piss he absolutely was taking yeah. You know, he's like, it's about leprechauns. Are there any aliens in it? You know, um, and it struck me that in fact there were no leprechaun stories on mythical Ireland, and I'm not sure that there ever have been. To be honest, mm. I think there's a very good reason for that. So, yeah, let, 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 let's just examine it very briefly, if we can. First of all, you're right; there aren't many leprechaun stories in Irish myth, and yet, or, or folklore, mm. and yet. I, I suspect if you were to ask, if you were to survey, say, Irish Americans in America and say, you know, can, can, can you think of some, some, some characters from Irish mythology? I wonder how many times the leprechaun would come up, you know? Yeah. Every time. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, and Darby O'Gill sort of springs to mind. Absolutely. And I think of the leprechaun as it is known in the 20th and 21st centuries as a sort of a kitsch rendition of something that is actually quite genuine. Mm. A while back in the past five years, I took a peculiar interest in one notion of where the leprechaun emanates from. And that is that the leprechaun is supposed to be a diminished version of the deity we know as Lou, Lou Samaldamach or Lou Lofada, Lou Lunanschlech, Lou MacEthlin. Uh, and I was fascinated by this, so much so that it was a major uh, inspirational theme in Return to Segish, uh, which is a book that I published this year. Mm. Um, and, and, and basically, the story in a nutshell, and, this, and I'll tell you why I really love this. I really love it. And why I think I'd hold on to this as a more genuine vision of where the little man emanates from than the idea of a trickster cobbler, you know? a shoemaker or a cobbler who, yeah. you know, 
sits sits winking at you with his little green suit and his red boots and says, how are you there now? You know, I'll Top of the shoes. morning. And if you agree to allow me to fix your shoes, then all of a sudden you'll be in all sorts of shite, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it wasn't that kind of... Uncanny. Uncanny. <laughs> <laughs> you did it. You did it. Perfect. But Lou, so the story goes that... Well, you know that Lou was supposed to have been killed at Ishnok by... Yeah. Was it the three sons of McCool, McHecht and McGrania? Was it? No? I believe. Oh, I'm, I'm vague on the detail and I'm, ter- it's, I, I'm terribly sorry for this. Um, there was Mar- some Mar- kind of infidelity. Now, he'd slap me across the face and say, cop on to yourself, Murphy. I, I should know this as well. This yeah, is bad. Well, <laughs> the, the tradition is that Lou was killed at Ishnock. Yes. Uh, and, and that's, there's a, a cairn there, Cairn Loga, the cairn of Lou, and there's a lake associated with him. Um, but you see, you know that when the Milesians came, uh, and I'm fascinated by that whole episode. For me, that's that, that is simply that and the creation mythology. They're the areas that have become hugely interesting to me. Mm-hmm. So the Milesians came along and everybody thinks that there was a, a war and that the Milesians won the war. Now, there were battles, but in fact, that's not really what happened. What happened was the Milesians reached a sort of a, an accord, a deal, as it were, with the Dedanans. The Dedanans weren't defeated as such. They agreed, um, at, thanks to Amrigin, by the way, the poet yeah. of the Milesians. The warriors of the Milesians wanted bloodshed, but the poet wanted something else. And he met, of course, Eru at Ishnok. And the idea was that she said, look, yeah, you, you, if you call the, the, the island after me, we'll, we'll let you have it. And of course, that's what transpires after a little bit of trickery involving the sea being turned into a storm and all the rest. What happened to the Dedanans was that they went underground into the Shi, into the hollow hills, into the, the cairns, into the passage tombs, but also the Shi were supposed to be, you know, the natural landscape, these, the, the, the hills and mountains. <clears throat> and and they, they went in there and allowed the Milesians to have the Telluric landscape, as it were, the Overhill. world. Mm. And all of the time, of course, the Dedanans possessed this power to emerge into the real world, as it were, from the other world. So, in fact, in in in, in some perspectives, it could be said that the, the Dedanans actually became more powerful. A little bit like when yeah. in Star Wars, you know, uh, Obi-Wan says to Vader, you know, you can strike me down, but I'm well, going to, you know, yes. in, in, in essence... Uh, <laughs> he stole it off Irish mythology is what you, he did he stole a lot off mythology uh, well, but it is that idea of yeah once you get you you are pushed into the other world it actually the other world is such a place of kind of magic and potential that it it, it liberates them from time and space and all kinds of constraints well it didn't prevent him from being an advocate for you know for instance the young Jedi Luke Skywalker exactly. and so we're thinking along the same lines right so they weren't disempowered as such. They may have been dispossessed to an extent. I, I, I have written speculatively that this episode with the Milesians made the Dedanans more powerful in mm. some ways. Anyway, the tradition, one of the traditions of the little man is that at Ishnok, Lou went underground, right? Right. And that like Atlas, he was supporting the weight of the world above him. He was carrying it. And that in doing so, he became diminished over time. The weight of the world became a great burden for him and that he shrunk and shrunk and, and was diminished in size until he became this 
small figure who, according to some traditions, and, and there are, I think, at least probably <laughs> typically of Irish tradition, there are probably at least five stories as to where the leprechaun comes from. But but two of them are that it, it is Lou Corpon, the little body of Lou, and Lou Cromon, little stooping Lou, uh, wow. associated mm. with this tradition of Lou having gone under the earth at Ishnach and, as I said, carrying the weight of the world and the weight of the world oppressing him and suppressing him and making him diminished. And that, to me, makes an awful lot of sense. Yeah. But it parallels also something, Aaron, that you said there a while back, which was that you can view the the little people, the the, the good folk. Um, we know them in, in, she, in, yeah. in, in, in different guises. You can view them uh, in many respects, but I think that what we're looking at is precisely the sort of uh, um, transformation of the deities that has taken place as the result of, you know, imperialism in different forms, Mm. be it, you know, uh, people who come into your land and convince you that your traditions are naff, that your traditions are rubbish, that they're, you know... Uncivilised. You know? Yeah. Rude, yeah. Or uh, the religious institutions, which initially were, for still are, as far as I'm concerned, foreign to these lands. Yeah. You know, that when Christianity arrived... For a long time, uh, I think John Kerry has written about this. Several scholars have written about how Christianity confronted and dealt with the issue of the demons. What did it do? It at times tried to say that there were demons, that there were fallen angels, mm-hmm. that there were demons, that there were humans who had genealogies just like the rest of us and who lived and died mortal lives. And eventually it must have been realized uh, that the very best thing that could be done in terms of the two of the Danon was to stop, just stop talking about them, <laughs> you know, because yeah, 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 yeah. their hold was so strong. Their hold on the imagination was so strong. That and they, you know, case, yeah. I, I, I always remember lane from um, uh, the Dancing Lunas of the Brian Freel play, uh, where one of the women in the kitchen uh, in space, again, just like, the beliefs in the town and I don't be listening that's that superstition that um that awful Irish uh paganism and like you know I, and it was just because one of the daughters wanted to go out to the the Samhain festival you know and like oh the and it's it, it was again quite in the culture of putting it down as something yeah. that was silly and old and superstitious and dangerous and needed to be pushed away and I, I love that idea of of Lou being diminished kind of physically because I've always had it as kind of a metaphysical like reduction of like he was they were just kind of turned into something that you need to be afraid of and belittled but like actually that the weight of the upper world kind of crushing his yeah. body down is uh is fascinating it's, a, it's an incredible image but it's also I, I think it's one of the things that's really interesting to me is like the way that size works throughout Irish folklore and mythology because like when you have characters like Oisin coming back from Tiernan Og, uh, or any of those wanderers who get lost and come back from pre-Christian Ireland to Christian Ireland, one of the things they all say is how small everybody is. That's one of the consistent things is they're like, why, why is everybody so tiny? And everyone reacts to them like they're giants. 
And like mm-hmm. in the in the conversations of Oshin and Patrick, he talks about like, I've seen blackbirds as big as your cows and I've seen, you know, <laughs> berries as big as your as your churns of butter. And he proves himself right to Patrick. This is all not an exaggeration that things used to be bigger and grander and so the fact that the two of did that and become physically small i think is really interesting i don't know i you know i think i think the loo the the idea of loo being diminished physically is really interesting as well but just in terms of like i think it probably says a lot about the storyteller who's talking as well whether they are bringing you giant fiona or tiny little um fairies of the other world because i think they're kind of it says something about the the teller's orientation to the other world. Like, is it a place of larger than life beings or is it a place of like diminished um, kind of amoral little creatures? It, it kind of makes sense in my head. Like if you're in the, the 1700s and, you know, your, your country's awash with it, the different languages and, and you're looking at this hill and you're saying, oh, there's... There, I hear there's great banquet halls inside that. They must be, they must be to, like, you know, to fit, to, to physically fit them in there, you know, to kind of almost make, ah, well, they must be tiny. <laughs> and then that, like, looking around uh, the shadows and, like, I, I have a little black cat here on the cork and she, she moved and she's like, a leaf will move out in the garden and you can't see her, like, because she just, you know, disappear and, like, nearly think there's something there that isn't necessary or you know a, a little thing stirring and just your imagination can it's not too fast till you start believing that there is a small little creature that maybe i'm spending too much time yeah on. there's a kind of it's kind of easier to account for smallness in in the unseen um but then yeah there's 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 different kind of places that it that it takes well i think um, that one of the things that imperialism does is it makes you small you know yeah it, it puts you down it makes you small and it makes obviously he tries to do likewise to your traditions it makes your traditions small and if they're small they turn into sort of you know they're a caricature of uh, what i think imperialism turned them into mm. which is you know they're still troublesome they're irksome but they're irksome uh, as much uh, to uh, the oppressor as it were uh, as they are to the peasantry you know, this this notion that, you know, uh, you could be whisked away, you know, um, <laughs> you know, that if you see them dancing in the nighttime, I'm talking about the fairies in particular, uh, not necessarily the, uh, the the little man, but more generally, you know, that if you saw them dancing or if you were to uh, encounter them, especially at nighttime, around a ring fort or a wrath or something that very much the lesson seems to be in stay away don't interfere with them you know and it's it's like it's almost like that was the, perhaps the church's way of you know dealing with things was to say stay away from them you know mm-hmm. stay away from them, like a, a sort of prohibition you know and then what you get with prohibition and i'm talking specifically about the prohibition in the <laughs> states what you get is nobody is to touch or have any alcohol well then you get sorts all sorts of shabines and and uh, moonshine you know manufacturing yeah. little Absolutely, places you yeah. know springing up all over the place flourishes in the shadows I would probably, I don't have enough research to back this claim up, but I suspect that throughout the Middle Ages, for instance, um, people, the peasantry, the peasantry had a jewel 
belief system. They had a dual religion. On the one hand, they were practicing Christians and they went to mass and all the rest. And on the other hand, they believed in the little people or or they still held on to that belief in the Daedanans. It's just that over time, the Daedanans became diminished into the little people, you know? Yeah. And that's the that's what's so fascinating about these superstitions. They clung on for a very long time. And in a lot of ways, you can say they're probably still in some way attached. But as a third party, and you mentioned the Americans there. So we have obviously the, uh, the oppressed kind of, uh, whether they're peasantry or Irish, the potential whatever uh, in from the English and, and then you have a third perspective on what's going on the stories that are coming to America and an illustration comes out about these stories from you know whether they were handed uh, however they got delivered to Disney and you get these yeah and people not, and not then, just Disney I mean I think I think it was probably part of you know, I think Walt Disney, I, I, I could be wrong in this, but I think Walt Disney did draw the leprechaun first and he was they? the creator. That's what I found in my little bit of look. He came up with the very first actual leprechaun. So the leprechaun itself is this image that has been Americanized of our stories that were kind of repressed and then fed back to us in yeah. this weird little loop. So, well, it's it's a weird little loop, but it's also kind of, you know, it's it's just in terms of like that dual religion thing, I think it's also, that's very characteristic of, of a, a colonized peoples to have that kind of cognitive dissonance of holding two contradictory things in the mind at the same time. Like that's a kind of a documented phenomenon of like people have that sort of splitting of self where you have both like, yeah, you are able to hold contradictions. Um, and I think that's a lot of what's going on with the superstition and the and the religiosity of it. But this is, I think, probably a good point to move on to the second one of the stories, because... because the danger of the fairies, <laughs> they were so dangerous. And I think it's interesting that the church eventually settled on, OK, stop talking about them theologically, but also stay away from them because they're dangerous. Um, and that that seems to have been a really um strong belief as well that these people were scary and dangerous and needed to be avoided and that is nowhere more evident than in the story of the changeling and i guess like it you know the me the folk tales those those beautiful books uh, i can't remember which one it was now but oh, i remember a few years ago going through this uh and finding like evidence of, of court cases in uh, yes. the 1800s of like of people who've been brought up on court for manslaughter for hacking the arms and legs off babies uh, for drowning babies for leaving babies out in uh, in forests and people finding them afterwards and all of it was was down to either some kind of birth defect or uh, some form of of probable a lot of time it was like either autism or something you know you can probably find yeah. in a, a modern some kind of some kind of neurodivergence or some kind of physical disability or and it wasn't it wasn't always you know as as in the story that you told this month it was not always um babies or young children do you want to tell us a little bit about the Bridget Cleary story just to kind of set the context just to set the tone yeah yeah sure so Bridget Cleary and I've been fascinated with this since I saw uh I've seen a number of plays based on Bridget Cleary uh so it's it's been one of the more theatricalized uh stories in Irish folklore and 
are you with your are you a fairy or are you the wife of Michael Cleary is the is the nursery rhyme that came up after this kind of uh, infamous uh, court case that was held after the murder of Bridget Cleary. Um, and it was in 1840. Jesus, I'm, I had the date in the podcast. Um uh, possibly 84, 46, but that might have been a different date. Anyway, uh, check the podcast for the actual date. <laughs> Put it in the description below. But the, uh, or was it 56? Anyway, um, it was obviously a rough time in Ireland. In Tipperary at the time, apparently there was an awful lot of uh, violence between, um, thanks, Erica, for whispering that. I didn't hear you. <laughs> I was what trying was to it? say 1895. 95. 90. It was, this was, I think, why it, why it was so famous was because it was so late in the century. It was yeah. nearly, the, it was the nearly the dawn of the like, of the 20th century and modernity and everyone was very civilized after now. After the famine, after the famine. Yes. Um, yes. So there's a lot of, lot of trauma still in the country. There still bloody is after the um, famine, but there certainly was then. Yeah, the story goes that basically Bridget was married to a man named Michael Cleary, seven years older than, than her. She was a dressmaker and an egg deliverer and she went off to deliver eggs to a cousin or somebody near a fairy fort she got caught in a cold it was an abnormally cold uh oh he froze he froze for me march and then she came we're back okay uh oh dear sorry do you want to try that do you want to start that again i think he just froze for a second but uh Okay, hopefully this won't be too annoying and, and listen back. Um, so the story goes, she went out to deliver eggs and she got caught out in cold weather by the fairy fort and then came back, went to bed and her husband decided she was changeling. At that point, she didn't return at all from the fairy fort. She'd been stolen and one of uh, the unwanted fairies took her place. And this was the, the myth that went around a guy called Ganey, uh, either Dennis or John Ganey, depending on the source, told Michael Cleary and filled his head, I'd say. And then he was talking to everybody around the locale for, and either convincing them or they were kind of drumming each all of themselves up and they all got into a hidden hysteria, basically, about she was definitely a fairy. He then accused her, poured all sorts of potions over her and um, force fed her a potion and concoction. And eventually when she didn't three times say her name, that she was uh, Bridget Cleary, the wife of uh, Michael Cleary, she said it twice and she took two bites of, of uh, brown bread with uh, jam on it, but not three. He took that as proof that she was in fact a fairy, poured lamp oil over her and set her light and uh, killed her in the kitchen. Um, yeah. And, and I, so, I think that the harrowing thing about that story is that his belief seems to have been quite genuine. Like he he thought that he was getting his wife back. And that was what the trial found as well, was that this was this was manslaughter rather than murder. And, you know, he 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 believed that his wife had been taken and that he, these these steps that he was taking were going to get her back, which is a different kind of horrifying um, I mean, it's hard. what happened to her is is absolutely horrifying. But I think what happened to him and to the community as well when they when they got so into this belief and got so fixated on this idea is is yeah, it's it's horror of a different type. 
And it, it went it went all over the world. Like newspapers in America picked it up in in Argentina, like all over Europe, they were talking about it because it was it was lauded as the last witch burning in our in our you know out of Ireland. Everyone, oh magic, she was burned witch because that that was what had been happening happening in mainland Europe, but not really. Uh, in Ireland because it was, it was the belief system slightly different but then it got mm. taken up as that so um, the, the idea of the changeling being taken and stolen away and replaced by one of the of their unwanted fairies was obviously evident enough in the culture and it just lasted and lingered up until the turn of the uh, um, 19th or 20th century so like it was crazily close to uh, modernity I suppose and, and a time where the English were attempting to to see themselves as, as civilized and hoping that the Irish would, would be be some way close behind, but it was taken as proof then that they were actually uh, a whole bunch of savages. Yeah, and it kind of lashed down on it then. Home home rule was like a live question at that point, wasn't it? Like yeah. that was a that was a kind of you know the the relaxing of of power over Ireland as a colony was up for debate and this was very much taken as proof of like no we can't let them govern themselves they're absolutely fucking mad um because they burned a woman um they're they're savages but talk to us a bit um anthony about about changelings well there are a few themes here i think that need unpacking uh, <laughs> sure for, first of all uh, i would say without again without having done extensive research i would be very curious to find out um and of course it's probably an impossible task at this remove i would love to be able to find out what effect the presence of the british and the presence of the catholic church had had on the growing or the growth of superstition mm. um, and what aspect of it was a genuine sort of holdover or carryover from pre-christian tradition so that is the first thing I would say, is that you kind of get the impression that the malevolence of the folk, the, 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 the good folk or the small folk, whatever you want to call them, because they come under so many different names, that that may not have been an entirely, uh, shall we say, an, an indigenous um, um, yes. and a, a sort of an indigenous process of yeah or, or evolution mm, you know? interesting yeah. that 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 may have been something that they were the demonic possibilities might have been brought about by you know um the, you know that the, the church had demonized them to the extent that the peasants or the the ordinary folk actually believed yeah. that and came to that's, believe it that's a very good point actually that that there may have been an older belief system in which an encounter with the with the other folk and an encounter with the other world would have been framed very very differently and maybe if a woman was away with the fairies for a little while that was okay Hmm. and maybe she came back with some wisdom because there are all kinds of stories in the mythology of course of like going to the other world and coming back with some wisdom so maybe if somebody gets a cold by a fairy fort and is like out of it for a few days you just wrap them up and wait for them to come back um that's no, not it's a different thing, framing. Of course. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. And that's not to say that, for instance, the idea of a trickster uh, wasn't inherent in, in, oh, no. in early <laughs> Christian myth. And so, for instance, we have an indication of that in uh, the stories of Brunabonia, where 
Angus tricks the Dagda out of Newgrange, you know, um, and all sorts of trickery involving, you know, the manipulation of time in the mythology of Brunabonia. Um, you know, Elkmar, you go on there on a little errand and Elkmar is reluctant to go, but he agrees to go and Dogda casts a spell. Uh, Elkmar will think he's only away for a day when in fact he's been yeah. away for nine months. Um, <laughs> so there's that. Likes that one. Right. Yeah. Now, there's a separate aspect, which is mental health. Yeah. Which is even in 2021, one of the great undealt with, if that's a word, how do you, you know, one of unresolved. the unresolved, <laughs> unresolved problems of Irish society that has plagued us since, you know, the 19th century, since the time of the famine, since the flight of the earls, since the arrival of the Normans, since probably the arrival of the Vikings and before and before and before. Oh, yeah. So, there's the, there's the mental health issue on two fronts here, which is what happened to uh, uh, Bridget Cleary? What happened to her? What happened to her that she changed? Was she suffering from acute depression? Was she psychotic? Had she, I mean, the idea that he was force feeding potions or whatever to her, had she imbibed something? that mm. made her change previous to this episode. Um, you know, was she schizophrenic? Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, it, it's an awful pity that Irish peasants in the 19th century couldn't um, have known about yeah. the great work that was already uh, beginning to take shape in the world of psychoanalysis and uh, psychoanalytics and all of that. Because at that time, people didn't know about for instance, schizophrenia and psychosis. And depression wasn't something that was diagnosed in 19th century Ireland. No. And so the only frame of reference that people had was superstition, mm -hmm. you know, and religious and spiritual belief. And so it was all addressed within that, that framework, which was, of course, totally incapable of uh, resolving these problems for people. And so, yeah, if somebody undergoes a profound change in their personality, which is still uh, eminently uh, not just possible, but is actually, you know, manifesting itself in Irish people today, is that there's a re bloody good reason for that that can be diagnosed by psychotherapy. They're yeah. probably depressed. They may possibly be having a psychotic episode. At the very least, they're neurotic. They may be undergoing you know, uh, a, a, you know, a, 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 a schizoid episode. But then you uh, look at Michael Cleary. Yeah, yeah. He was willing to do. And then yeah. you suddenly see, well, he's probably just a psychopath. You yeah. know, good chance, or, good chance. If, or also psychotic or also in the grip you know, of a delusion. Yeah. You know, and delusional, you certainly. Yeah. You may very well undergo uh, a significant change in your personality because he's a very, very difficult and malevolent individual to deal with, right? On top of that, you're, 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 you're in an era where, uh, look, let's face facts about the drinking Irish. There's a reason we're called the drinking Irish. And that was one of the ways that we dealt with all the shit that we dealt with, 
or, or that we had to handle. That was one of the ways we tried to cope. It was a coping mechanism yeah, for yep. all of the things. Like, uh, you know, uh, if, if you look at the, uh, at the 19th century, we had had the famine at the late 19th century. We had had failed uprisings. We had seen in just recent centuries the, the destruction of our culture we were seeing the rise of the English language and the decline of the Irish language. We were still at that time. I mean, when, what, when was a Catholic emancipation? That was sort of fresh in the memory, wasn't it? We were dealing with, as, as Sorka, as you pointed out, we were, we were in the midst of the whole sort of home rule thing. And, you know, we were, we didn't realize it in 1895 but we were getting close to you know rising again and independence and all of that so i'm much more inclined to look at things from that point of view but then Absolutely. there's the uh, there's the essence of superstition itself and look you can't get away from the fact that the irish i think are a superstitious people but look if you think about it we were a, a race, uh, genetically, we're a very diverse race. Yes. <laughs> not a, a unique, unified bloodline. In as much as that concept has any validity at all. <laughs> I know, yeah. We're it's... not a very cohesive one. <laughs> and of course, there are lots and lots of people, some of whom are ad adherents to modern pagan beliefs and all the rest, who think that the Irish are a unique genetic race. And perhaps there are people who believe we're all descended from, you know, uh, whoever it happens to be, that we're all <laughs> descendants of uh, Eremon or we're all descendants of Fintan MacBorkra or something. Right, like. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that guy got her own, in fairness. He did have a lot of kids. You know, but the superstition, I think, was there. Or Nile and the Nine Hostages, the other one who's basically grand great-grandfather oh, of everybody. Quite yeah. prolific, wasn't he? Yeah. Yes. He's <laughs> everyone's daddy. Um, you know, so there's, there's the idea that we were naturally superstitious anyway and i think if if you look at just whatever about our his, historic history <laughs> it's going to sound funny historic history but yeah, you know, yeah. you know, when i say in terms of our mythic history yes. you know the, the mythological history of this island says that you know once upon a time ireland had nobody in it and then yeah. along came depending on which one you, you yeah read, yeah whichever along one along came kazair granddaughter of noah or mm -hmm. Parthalone, who was also you know had connections with noah and suddenly there were people on this island and then there were waves and waves of you know incursions and people coming along and you know taking over and sometimes dying of plague and you know yes <laughs> What that was a good trope, yeah. To, actually, I believe that the critical moment in all of this is the one that I was talking about initially, which is the, the horizon between the Milesians and the Dedanans. And yeah. I think that's where a lot of the superstition arises from. It's like the, the Dedanans are going to go away now, but in fact, they're not going away. Uh, they're going into the Xi and they're able to come out again and they're able to very much interfere in the affairs of this world. In fact, uh, after the Milesians had taken over, uh, there was an episode in which the Dedanans were, were causing their corn, uh, their crops to fail and causing all sorts of, you know, chaos with the weather. And the Milesians had to say, now, listen here, you come on. We had an agreement. Now, come out here and have a chat with me, you know, and this notion that they're ever present and they're, they're yes. they are a force to be reckoned with continues right down into late medieval times where you have the stories of the fairies who are able to. And where do they emerge from? Of course, most of the action happens in relation to the rats now mm -hmm. three-fourths 
yeah, our early medieval structures, but also the cairns, the mounds, basically anything that is deemed in the minds of the peasantry uh, uh, and the indigenous folk to be related to something that goes back probably before uh, Christian times, you know, that that is where the, the action generally and, and the change that happened um, uh, to Bridget Cleary, of course, happened in conjunction with one of these rats where the troublesome uh, uh, good folk, little folk, whatever you want to call them, caused some sort of miraculous change to take place. In addition to that, don't forget that we have stories about the Dedanans in, in which they were seen to be, what, what would we call other world agents or they were, they, um, they were. Yeah, because they, they were, they interfered. They well, didn't I think they were like, mediators, weren't they? Mediators between worlds maybe is a good word. Interfe that's a good word. A good word too, probably. So yeah, it's a bit loaded. <laughs> Yeah. The story of Angus, uh, you know, Ashlinga Angusel, and yes, it's this dream maiden who's a changeling. She's a swan one year, mm. she's a human the next, and she beguiles him to such an extent that he wastes away in love sickness and has to find her. When he finds her, she's in the shape of a swan. He must take the shape of a swan to have her love. He does so. They fly back to Brunabonia and forevermore, you know. The story doesn't actually have a conclusion, but just, we, we could add in. <laughs> and happily happily. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but you, you, you no. do, you get their, their influence is felt. And like there's stories like um, uh, the story of, of Conor Amor, the, the high king who's like descended of the bird people who are somehow related to the other world. And it's never made quite clear. But, you know, there's all these kind of gasa and the forces of the other world start turning on him when he breaks the gasa. And fairy fires start erupting on the hills and like all of this shrieking in the air. So there's this idea of like the imminence of the other world and that it is there as a as a like it, it's a presence. It's a presence in all of the stories in a way that I think is really interesting. And then you also get, you know, you get tricksters like Mananon McLear or in the Fianna story of the hospitality of Kuna's house, this guy Kuna, who will like bring people into the other world to show them a bunch of allegories and then send them back saying, this is what all of those allegories meant. Um, congratulations, you are wise. Um, <laughs> which always cracks me up because it's always just, here's some really wild stuff. And then they'll be like, this means this, and that means that. And now you know everything. <laughs> it sounds a little bit like the New Testament, you know? Yeah. I'm always, I always say Jesus was very effective because he spoke in, in, in parables, which were effectively mythological metaphors. Yeah. You know? <laughs> he knew the language of the day. The best way to get through to people historically has been to tell them stories, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Chop, chop a tree and watch it fall and burn your men's whatever. Have what you ever thing? read the Bible, Aaron? <laughs> do the thing until thou not do it until no, the other. Not even close. <laughs> Don't not do it to the other, but do it to yourself first. Until you do it. Stop trying Don't to make up closer there. To someone else's wife. Matthew, Matthew, chapter, <laughs> Matthew chapter seven begins with judge not that thou yeah. be not judged for with there you go. what judgment ye judge ye shall be judged and with what measure ye meet it shall be measured back unto you. You Don't. know not the moat that is in my mother's <laughs> eye and there is a beam hanging out of your own eye. First remove the beam from... <laughs> 
That's Andrew, exactly you were, what I said. You were exactly only encouraging Aaron on his new series, Fake Bible Quotes with Aaron Hegarty, which I'm sure <laughs> will be cropping up any time now. shall always kill. No. That was definitely one. No. Stop it. A... Stop <laughs> it. Actually, folks, there's a very serious one here, which is, what is the first commandment? And a lot of people who are not religious will say, thou shalt not kill. It is not. The first commandment first is... First I am the Lord your God, you shall not have strange no gods before me. Gods before me. And you see, this is exactly what the problem is. The Boom. problem is that in Christianity, you shall have not have your Tua Dedan and deities over me. Because which is it? Which is, yeah. Is the punishment, you know? Which is it? Uh, punishments uh, lined out. You know, the lake of fire being the most yeah. serious one. But I mean, if you're penitent, then you have to sit in a cold church on a pew and recite the same prayer over dozens of times. And that's somehow going to yeah. release you from this bondage, you know? And of course, that was the big innovation of, of Christianity in some ways was that it there was, was that commandment because prior to that, all of the you know, religions that arose out of that region of the world were perfectly fine with you having other gods. You could believe in God and you believed in other gods. You believed in Yahweh, you believed in Baal, it was all good. Whereas this mm. was the first religion that said, actually, no, if you believe in me, you don't believe in anybody else. And you have to throw out your two Adanan and you have to throw out all of the others. One yeah. of the things that I liked about, uh, and I didn't read much about it, but Hinduism was, I got the notion that Hinduism, so say in, in India, there, were, there, there, weren't, there wasn't any, at any time, apparently, there wasn't a specific over God, mm. uh, uh, you know, an Ul-Ahar, like Yohu, yes. Ul-Ahar, you know, <laughs> one Krishna, that you kinda, you know, no, he's no. the Supremo, right, and everyone else is beneath him, or her, right? Yeah. In Hinduism, it was like, choose your own God, you know? There's different and, different people will worship different gods and we'll, we'll put them in a different order. The reason that is wonderfully conducive to good mental health is because we all identify with archetypes, you know? Yes. It's like, what is the archetype that sings to you the most? And that is yes. the deity to whom... Now, in some cases, that can be malevolent, of course, because the deities aren't always good, you know? Kali. Well, well, yeah, I'm, but I'm it is about Crum uh, as an example. Uh, yeah. Crum is a good example of of the the dark one. But I I think you're you know it that's that's a very true. And if the only archetype that you are allowing divinity is is the kind of father, uh, leader, king, that's very destructive for anybody who doesn't identify with that archetype. And I think like going back <laughs> to what you said about like the mental health aspect of, of, of this story of how, how the connotations of whether Bridget Cleary was having an, an episode or whether Michael Cleary was having an episode and there was evidence of him actually accusing her of being a fairy apparently before this incident, you know, so he was, it was in his mind say like she was probably I, the, the way I kind of looked at it was like maybe she's bipolar or something she had like episodes of, of down you know like or whatever and he decided to jump on this but the yeah, content of, gaslighting her which doesn't help yeah, yeah completely. that doesn't make, that doesn't make yeah. people less unstable uh, no let's be of honest. course not of course not so like yeah with, with that aspect but imagine the cognitive dissonance, you know, like, and the, the difficulty you would have with trying to believe in one supreme power, while all of this superstition was so heavily and so abundant and so viscerally there. And so much of your daily life was kind of interwoven with the hills, the landscape, the the hawthorn tree, the thing that you were told, um, the worry about going in and spending too much time in the field. 
and and there must have been a severe pressure on on people's mental capacity at that stage. Oh, I you think so. Sane and, and alive in in Ireland at, at that stage, and apparently there was an awful lot of violence between couples in Tipperary specifically at that time. Um, and there was like whether it was women beating up their husbands or stabbing them or killing them or vice versa. So there was just a, a prevalence of a lot of. Sure, they uh, were like you know you talk about the unresolved trauma. These, if you look at the timeline of that, all of the adults in Tipperary were raised by famine survivors. Yeah. Like, that's that's forty years after Black Forty Five. Yeah. That's. Uh, yeah. That's yeah. that's very heavy. Simple, like memory, yeah. You're you're yeah. not gonna have a good childhood if your parents survived black. For- like you, that's sorry to be blanket statements here, but like that's no. that's a hell of a like that's a, that's an incredible legacy. And as you were saying, Anthony, people mostly coped with it by by drinking, um, yeah. and and use that as the coping mechanism because it was the one they had. Well, and I like think, you know, well, there's another fascinating aspect here, and I think this is unacknowledged, right? I hope this isn't going to completely blow the mind, but why is, it, why is it in late medieval Ireland? Why is it that all of the supernatural encounters that are taking place, the ones that are recorded, are not supernatural encounters with uh, Christian figures? Why is it that people are encountering the fairies, the good people, the, the, the trickster deities, etc., etc., the leprechaun, whatever you want to call it? Why are people not encountering St. Patrick and St. Column Kill and St. Bridget and, and the figure of Jesus? Why aren't people coming away from their, their, their midnight sojourns in the countryside, in which, let's be honest, they may have been drunk or they may have been under the influence of some other substances, and coming back and reporting, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, encounters with imminent Im- figures from the religion that they're supposed to be believing in? Why yeah. are they coming back with something pertaining to the exact antithesis to that and I think that itself tells a story as well absolutely but I also think it's it's the thing that is suppressed the thing that we do not articulate is the thing that has the the biggest hold over us and when you have a big you know when it is acceptable to talk about Jesus and Mary and Bridget and Columkill that's all fine you can talk about that as much as you want to but that doesn't have a hold over you in the same way that something forbidden does mm-hmm. um and, so and when I, you when you are when you are tripping off your head on you know whether it's uh wheat that went moldy and and got a bit of ergot in it or whether it's like i uh, got a little got got a, got a got a bad a fun mushroom mixed in with the other mushrooms whatever substance is is influencing you what you are going to be confronted with is the thing that you don't acknowledge is the thing that you don't talk about. Mm. Um, because that's what comes up. That's what comes up. That's what always comes up is the thing that you are spending all the energy trying to not think about. Um, and and, and I think there's so much. And I also think that there's so much of like the fairies are so imaginatively powerful because they are so uncontrollable and so unpredictable. And I think that really speaks to people who don't have a sense of control over their life. And like Christianity has a certain logic to it of like, if you have a bad time, but you're a good person, you get to go to heaven and you have jam forever and it's all great. Um, And if you are a bad person and you do bad things, you get to go to hell and you burn in a lake of fire. And also, by the way, don't worry about the people who are being horrible to you in this life because they will get theirs in the next life. So you don't actually have to revolt. You just sit there and be a good little peasant and don't do anything and everything will be okay in the end. And 
that does not, I think, speak to most people's experience of life because life is not fair (laughs) and life is not just. And if there is a God, he is asleep at the wheel who is supposed to be ordering this, you know? And And so I think the idea of these like creatures with this incredible degree of like reality warping power who can come upon you and like, they're not always nasty. As much as, you know, a lot of the stories have them being unpredictable and violent, they might just take you and go on the piss. They might cure you of your disease. They might, you know, you might have a whole night dancing. You might learn an incredible, you might become the best musician in the world because you learned their tunes. Or they might fuck you up top to bottom and inside and out and you will never recover. And the, the justice to that is zero. It is entirely random. And I just think that's a, for me, there's more truth to that worldview of like, beware the forces of the other world. You can maybe invoke them. You can maybe try to negotiate with them, but like, it's, it's big, it's bigger than you and you don't know what's going to happen. There's a perfect link on the the last story we're talking about now, because. Oh God, we've got a whole other story. (laughs) Well, we got one last one. This is fascinating, by the way. Um, might have to be a dollar episode, but anyway, it's fine. Uh, it's a, it'll be coming out on on So and Eve, so it's a special, you know. Yes. Um, but I think like what we're talking about here is is like your intrinsic, uh, unconscious connection to something that is greater than you the unknown and an awful lot of and you mentioned archetypes anthony earlier and like the archetypes within mythologies are more rounded because they're older they've been around longer and they're kind of there's something more intrinsically human in them that you can relate to because they're flawed these characters are flawed a lot of the time and the the wandering whether it's the wandering banshee surica that is linked to death that everybody must face and you know gives the warning that someone's gonna die and wouldn't we all like a fucking warning like it'd be nice to know like you know the night before even but there's something linked to the the end is nigh and we're coming to it and it is now that we must face it and and the fact that you have some one of the she calling out for the Irish uh, families. And that's the big link with the Banshee. Or do you want to tell us a little yeah. bit more about well, what you found with that? So this was, the, I was I was struggling, to be honest with you, to find a Banshee story because most of the Banshee story, like we know what the Banshee, the Banshee superstition is that there are certain old Irish families and the lists vary um, from a couple of different places that I found them. But certain of the old Irish families, like the O'Neills, um, for example, the kind of they are the old Irish earls um, and the Banshee keens for one of them before they die. So obviously there's all kinds of traditions to do with the keening and the queen and, and all of this kind of stuff. But it's it's a little bit hard to tell a story about because most Banshee stories are, oh, my God, I saw a Banshee. This is what she looked like. And then somebody died. And that's kind of it. And it's sort of not a very interesting story. Like some of the descriptions are quite cool, but as a sort of a narrative for a story, I, I found a lot of them were a little bit lacking. So I found a one um, in, in the Yates book that I ended up retooling quite extensively, which is called McCarthy's Banshee. Uh, because the McCarthy family, while they don't always appear on the list of the families that the Banshee sings for, they're supposed to have their own Banshee, who is sometimes called Cleana 
you like that, Aaron, mm. um, who's the daughter of Madanon McLear and said to be Queen of the Banshees. Um, so in this story, you have a young heir called Charles McCarthy and his best friend called uh, Jack Ryan. And they're two rakes uh, in their youth. They come into their inheritances early and they, you know, run amok drinking and gambling and seducing women. Um, and McCarthy then has a fever and it almost dies, but doesn't, but comes back to life sharing a vision of a judge who told him that he had three years to turn it around. And uh, terrified by this vision, he completely turns his life around. However, he doesn't stop hanging out with his old friend, Jack Ryan. Meanwhile, Jack Ryan seduces a local girl. Uh, and the, the way that the book refers to her is she is a ruined girl, uh, which kind of tells you a lot, I think, about gender politics in those days. And uh, Jack Ryan's mum and Charles McCarthy's mum basically decide that their sons need to get married, even though Charles McCarthy still insists that he's going to die soon. <laughs> His mother doesn't believe him. So they arrange for Jack Ryan to get married in the McCarthy household in the hopes that this will inspire Charles. Um, but on the morning of the wedding, uh, sorry, the night before the wedding, this ruined girl uh, runs away, steals a gun and runs away and sees a banshee screaming in the night and pointing back towards the house that she fled from. And so she turns around, goes back and thinks she sees Jack Ryan, her ruiner, um, in the garden and shoots him only to realize that she mistook him for Charles McCarthy. And so uh, three years to the day after his vision, Charles McCarthy is slain by this girl uh, and, and all prophecies are fulfilled. Um, so like I said, I did, a, I did a bit of work to this. If anyone reads the original story, they'll notice it's quite different. But um, the, all of the main particulars are the same. The characters are the same. The, the events are the same. I just, different people saw different things in, in, in my retelling. But basically it's a, it's a, yeah, it's um, it's a story of a banshee who seems to have a slightly more active hand in the in the death of Charles McCarthy. Well, again, it's so hard to tell a story about just a one, a one event, and so I guess the the big thing with 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 this retelling or this telling of it is is it's surrounding by the kind of Hellfire Club or the this is the kind of well, closest thing to yeah. Not, not directly. Not these directly. are not these are not Hellfire Club members, but they, you know, we were talking about this, you know, thematically. I think it links in very much with this idea, which of course the Hellfire Club is is in the is it in the Dublin Mountains or is it in Wicklow? Um, yeah, it's the Dublin Mountains. Yeah, yeah, a site of supposed great haunting and great evil. And I've always, I've always just personally steered away from telling any Hellfire Club stories because I think it is a. Uh, boys club it's it there's something about there is a horror in it and i think everyone is putting the horror in the wrong place and the horror is when there are a group of young people who have absolutely unlimited resources and functionally no authority over them who are encouraged to indulge every impulse that they have um they visit horror on other people and it's not because of the devil. And so I've always really kind of steered. I don't want to tell stories about the Hellfire Club that make these dickheads sound cool because they weren't. <laughs> they were yeah. they were the like, you know, 
they were the Trump boys of their day. You know, they were they were just running around assaulting people and getting drunk and setting fires. And like they weren't they weren't fun and they weren't cool. Um, so there are two two of that type of character definitely in this story uh, in, in, you know, Ryan and, and McCarthy, although, of course, McCarthy reforms after his three years. I don't know that he ever actually pays any redress to his victims. Uh, that's not mentioned. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure either. Um, Anthony, what's your take on, on the Banshee? Maybe even specifically the link between McCarthy's, the O'Neill's, the old families. This has always struck me as a, as a curious aspect of the Banshee, that she's only linked to the kind of old families. Yeah, it's a curious one. F- first and foremost, I'm inclined to wonder about you know, what what aspects of the belief in the Banshee are, let's say, ancient, pre, mm. you know, uh, perhaps pre-Christian. Um, and I, 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 my own feeling, hunch, would be that a lot of the traditions are genuine. They're, they're, they're genuinely pre, prehistoric. That you have a figure who apparently represents death um who is female mm-hmm. who to be honest with you sounds i mean her name is ban she the woman of the she you know so is she a, a remnant a, a survival of the belief in the the, the damons mm. and if so w- what is so fearsome what is so malevolent what is what, what, why is it that she is remembered, you know, with with such with such darkness and dread rather than? So I'm inclined to think of, for instance, the Kalyuk. Um, mm. I'm inclined to think about the fact that the monuments themselves, and this is a, again something that causes so much debate, but it's it, it, I, I think it's just really naturally inherent in the design of the prehistoric passage tombs that they are uh, feminine they are organically feminine in design and then i think about the figure of the sheila gig you know mm. that is apparently sort of you know inviting you uh you know she's she's displaying herself in a in an apparently grotesque way and what's that sort of designed to make you think? I mean, some people say it was, you know, that they're, the Sheelana gigs are only associated with Norman churches, which again is, is, is uh, p- perhaps uh, antithetical or uh, at, at, at the very least mysterious why mm. Norman churches, you know. Uh, uh, some people have said that, well, the Sheelana gig was designed to sort of teach you, you know, the evils of, you know, the, the carnal evils of, the body and sexual desire and yet there if you look at the shield in the gig there is she's generally an older woman you know yeah. generally not that attractive but yet they're, she, they're not sexy like this is the thing no. about the she, they're these are not pornographic images they remind me of nothing so much as the like like you said the descriptions of the kyliuks particularly in the king stories where you yeah, get well, these uh, the reason that resonates so strongly with me is because of my own Kalyuk dream, which is very, very, very similar to the story of Niall encountering the hag and his brothers. You know, there's a transformative aspect. Of Give the us a kiss. 
<laughs> she she is at once terrifying and at once entirely what's the word lovable and amiable and you know welcoming so she the reason she is antithetical the reason there is a dichotomy around the kalyak is precisely because that is the human experience of life as we said earlier life uh, i think sorka you said something like life is shitty you know um so we encounter these this antithesis we encounter the antinomy in not just in the experiences of life, but actually in the experiences of ourself. Uh, something that stems a lot from Jungian psychology is the idea that, you know, we, 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 all, have, we all have within us the capability to do both, both good and evil. We all have within us that capricious nature that comes across as the jealous and angry God of the Old testament that comes across that trickster deity that comes across as that fairy who you know could be your friend but could be your worst enemy the banshee is the one that's designed to sort of bring you back uh to perhaps she is the psychopomp she is mm. the one who is to bring you across the threshold now if you talk to people who have had near-death experiences i happen to know four people who've had near-death experiences and have related them to me. But if you look at Colm Keane's work, Colm Keane is an Irish journalist who's written several publications about the near-death experience. I think Going Home is one of them. Um, you know, many people's experiences are the same. They, they die, and these, these are people who die literally and come back to life. They're people who are resuscitated after having a heart attack or a bang on the head or if they've been in a traffic accident and been brought to the hospital and, and been, been, been brought back. Or they've been on the operating table, they've died for a while and they've come back again. Many of them report the same, the same experiences, initially travelling through a void or a tunnel or a, a darkness, heading towards a brilliant, brilliant light and experiencing in that light a being that they can't describe, a being that is generally full of this overpowering uh, love and absolutely is non-judgmental. Uh, many of them have what they call, a, what you might call a life review. They, they, they are made to look back at all of the things they said and did, uh, those that were beneficent and those that were hurtful, uh, there is no judgment upon them when they do this. And this, this is all so fairly, these, these, these are huge experiences because the people who have these, this type of, there are people who have distressing near-death experiences yeah. as well, uh, which, which, which is too much for us to deal with in this episode. But the people who have near-death experiences like this who come back to life, come back with a very, very different view, both of their own lives and their own sort of interactions with people and specifically with their own deaths, all their fear of death is removed. Mm. So why is it that in, in Irish tradition in particular, but in so many traditions, that there is this sort of fearsome, fear, worrisome, ter terrifying aspect, which is we can't handle our own mortality. And what we do then is we invent or we... we not wholly invent this 
figure of the band. She isn't a, a complete invention, but we corrupt something that's there. We synthesize something that's there and we make it principally terrifying. Yeah, because that's the aspect that teaches that talks to us, I suppose, most about the fears around our own mortality. And yet, mm -hmm. if you think about the figure that is closest to the, the Banshee in terms of older, you know, say what appears to be pre-Christian, and, and that is the Kalyak, the, the imagery of the Kalyak is, yes, she is the goddess of winter, but also when you embrace her, she's the goddess of spring and summer and fecundity mm -hmm. and growth and, and good harvest and all the rest. And of course, sovereignty principally. So what the only thing that I can't really address is why the Banshee in particular seems to target these families, except for that if you think in the same way as we were talking earlier on about, you know, the the what why is it that the 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 fairies which are are probably a late survival of the Dedanans. Why are they so troublesome? Why is it that they're more likely to be malevolent than beneficent? Could we think in the same lines that somehow there's a distortion here that has taken mm. place? Is that, you know, the, the familial uh, lines, which were something that were, was, was something to be boastful of and something to be proud of. If you were an inale, it's likely that you had a contrived genealogy and mythology that was written down in the uh, in the books of the Middle Ages that elevated you, that something special. Why why would it be that you were haunted by a spectre, you know, that uh, was going to sort of reach out in in advance of your death? You know? I had a, I had a thought there, and it's connected to what you were saying about the Kailuk as the the symbol of sovereignty. Were they haunted mm. because they failed to be the kings? Were they haunted because they, in, in the period where we were colonized by Britain, they didn't embrace the Kailuk and they didn't become the kings because they're, they're kind of the old royalty. So I wonder, is this a kind of a, 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 a specter of their potential that was wasted? Maybe that's too clever for superstition. But... Or was it? Well, I... <laughs> Well, I don't know. I don't know. I think there's something there because I think the, 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 to flip that on his head a little bit, w were they using the attachment to the banshee, the woman of the she, as singling them out to elevate themselves up am amongst the the non uh, no lords and ladies of of, of Ireland, uh, raise them above the normal people, and uh, elevate themselves into. Um, you know, the tribes all could wage war and, and gather people to them to gather the the O'Neills, the Donnellys, the O'Hegartigs together up in Donegal to fly down for the Battle of Kinsale. You know, that's why we're here. Um, <laughs> what was it or in Cork? I mean, the Hegartys, but like, was it a form of saying we we still have a link to the old power, we still have a link to the old superstitions and the old beliefs, and they'll call out when one of us die? So you must, yeah, gather, is it? But it's it's double edged. I think it is, yeah. I think you're right. I think it is a holding on to prestige, but I also think there's a there's a certain aspect there of all of the kings had to embrace like the kings had to embrace the hag. That was what you're supposed to do when you meet the Kalyak. You're not supposed if you run away from her, you don't get to be the king. Do and if, if you make her into a death omen. Say again, Anthony. I'm just wondering, do we know when 
is there a particular uh, when these stories emanate from? I see. This is one of those I, things that I'm I always very bad at history. I got to say, at, at, well, at dates well, and timelines, but it strikes me uh, as as I mean, if if these are post, if these are 17th century onwards, yeah. then that would make a lot of sense to me. Mm. I mean, he's followed Kinsale, the Nine Years' War, the Treaty of Mellifont, the Plantation of Ulster, the Flight of the Earls. If they come after, say, the first part of the 1600s, then they make a certain amount of sense from that point of view, that yeah. you would be haunted by this, this, this primal deific agency that you had, you know, uh, that, 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 that was associated with your lineage. Mm. That, as you say, when you embraced, turned into this beautiful, voluptuous young woman who told you that I am sovereignty and the sovereignty is yours and yeah. you're going to have a magnificent reign usually, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and that suddenly they're haunted by this figure that they apparently can't embrace, that yeah. there's no option, but that when they hear the screech, their end of days is coming and there's nothing, they're completely helpless. Maybe, maybe in the post uh, Treaty of Mellifont world, then yeah, they were because when, well, yeah. the flight of the earls, they left, didn't they? Yeah. They left, obviously, in the hope that they could muster support on the continent and come back again, but they never came back again. So of course, that's something you would be haunted by. Mm. But it really depends on wh wh when were these tales about the families and, and the banshee? When were the, those tales told? When were they written down? The first were, right? That's, that's a good question. The first was, according, according to Google, uh, 1380 was the first oh, wow. recorded. Okay. So they go back to the Normans. So again, it's it's interesting that you linked in with the uh, the Sheen and the Gigs with the Normans. Again, these are very much associated with uh, the first literature mm -hmm. attached with uh, some of the Norman landings. Uh, and, and again, uh, the Max and the O's um, and, and deaths of... of higher um irish families being being called upon by by the woman of the she so it goes back it first mentions then and again I'm not, i don't know enough in the research of how much they dipped in or dipped out or came back in the prevail yeah how 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 prevalent were they and and because that's an interesting kind of notion but it is only a notion well even the fact that it's post the arrival of the normans is interesting you know yeah. it's like yeah, yeah it's almost like she um the banshee is is portent not is she's a portent not just of the individual's death but of the the death and decline of the old king kingly lines that's mm. it that's, yeah and it's that wailing or another are on the way out and again yeah. it's that lamenting and that keening that is that is not you know practiced anymore but that uh that aspect of of group uh going through a trauma of a death or or, or, or um actually kind of keening through it and, and that keening being representative by uh the ban and she and i guess it all links in with this fear of death that you mentioned anthony and you spoke so so beautifully thereafter uh we mentioned the banshee i thought you tied so many things together so well and i think this whole uh any hauna and this podcast this recording this chat will come out on the 31st of october and and the where the veil between the world the this world and the next and the other underhill is at its thinnest and its most uh easily kind of broken and you get so many of the spirits and, the, and those beings coming into play and i think it's all down to 
the fear or the acknowledgement and the acceptance and that double-edged aspect of death and whether you want to ignore it or celebrate the life that we're living and going into the dark year this festival that has become so globalized and so potentially americanized in, in lots of ways but coming back to the roots of it of of a festival before the dark half before people are gonna die mm-hmm. before we really enter where we might not get get out of and and celebrate what life we have left together um at a time when we can it's right after the harvest it's right after the abundance and it's now that we're closing off and going into the dark and hoping maybe to to dissipate the fear of death in in acknowledging that it's all it's interesting because in early in, in early medieval times you know this whole idea of metempsychosis or, or a reincarnation was so strong that of course the kings and the warriors never had any fear of death you know that for them death was something that was just a transformation to yeah. a, another life which you, you could view the sort of kalyak imagery as you know again you're embracing the old woman you're embracing your own death and you know that something else is going to follow from that something youthful so it's interesting that again that kind of gets cut off as if we fear now because they see mm. perhaps they see the end not just of themselves but as i said those lines those lineages which have been so important to them don't forget too that it was it was sort of in the 13th century um am i right 12th century was when the church sort of started to become diocesan and um, and that was also of a decline uh, in in the the old link between the the bardic schools and the scriptoria and and the monasteries you know that the secular stuff began to sort of drift away then after the synods of the 12th century and so again everything really starts i mean the vikings weren't such a problem because eventually what happened with the vikings was of course uh they they were subsumed into Irish life. We actually eventually got on with them, something that's not always acknowledged. There's a greater prevalence of Viking DNA in the modern population uh, than we perhaps have previously acknowledged. And Waterford, yeah. Wexford, Lamford, yeah, yeah. all of all those, all those fjords. <laughs> fjords. <laughs> all when, those towns. <laughs> when, when I, I think when, when the Normans arrived, when the Cistercians uh, and the likes of the Benedictines arrived, the, the big uh, monasteries, the synods happened, Ireland became diocesan. Um, a lot of things that were happening from that point on sort of marked the beginning of the end. Now, the end was a long time coming, if you think about it. What was Mellifont? 1603, I think. Mm. On the flight of the Earls, was that 1609? Something, so early, early. And, mm. and, 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 and within a couple of decades of that, you have this mad rush uh, to, to, to get the annals written down. I think mm-hmm. the annals of the four masters were compiled in the 1630s because all of these things were coming to an end. It was like, at this point in time, it's like, no, we're really, really seeing the end of very, very old orders of things here, you know? Um, in, 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 an interesting one that there's such a, a rise in interest in modern times in old Irish pagan, I don't use that word as a rule. I, I see it as a pejorative word that was used by the church to describe anything that wasn't Christian mm. and demonized. And, Very and well said, yeah. You know, but that there's such a rise in pre-Christian, uh, let's say secular, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 monuments, uh, you know, feast days, 
rituals, etc. It's an interesting thing that that has all happened in an era when we have seen the death of a lot of things. We have seen or we're seeing the death of a lot of things. You know, the Celtic tiger uh, sort of brought home a lot of things to us when it collapsed was that we, we you know, there's an, there's an era that has, in my lifetime, we've seen the, the, the virtual collapse of the church. We have seen the we are seeing continually the collapse of the political institutions. Uh, nobody trusts politicians anymore. We're seeing a collapse in, in, in trust in the media. We're seeing a collapse of the financial system, or we have seen several collapses of the financial system, which has left its mark, not only in mass migration or emigration out of the country, but in, in sowing a sort of you know discord among the people. One of the things that people have been doing throughout all this is flocking to ancient sites in Ireland, which is why we have a problem with vandalism and sites being overrun by people and being being damaged and having to have visitor numbers cur curtailed because there's such a mad rush towards that now, you know? So that's a much bigger discussion than, than, than the Banshee. But the idea is that we are seeing the death of something, but we're also seeing the possibility of the birth of something in, mm. uh, at all times throughout that it's it's like we're going backwards it's like not going backwards as in regressing but going back to things that were here before all of the i i consider the roman church to have been one of the forces of uh, imperialism in ireland so oh absolutely if you, if 100%. you have to go back to before the fifth century you, you have do. to go back before saint patrick uh, yeah. and just in case anybody thought that was a dream period don't forget that um in early medieval Ireland, there was internecine warfare between the provincial kings and chiefs. Yeah, yeah, I, I point always, that one yeah. out all, all the time. Like the romanticization of that time is. We always got to be careful with that. But, uh, uh, well, but I think I think I'm, you do. Before yeah. we just we're wrapping this up now beautifully, but I think like it is important to look back. You know, that's the old Trump with uh, history is like look back to know where you've come from so you can know where you're going. Um, and in terms of looking back at the mythic history of, of stories and connecting with deeper knowledge or, you know, Kurda Kosair and the Talav and throwing your feet into the ground and like, you know, of these ancient places to get rooted and really, you know, grounded in, in something a little bit more, uh, just more bigger grander greater than where you've actually come from in your own little life and whatever traumas have been passed down through the through the ages and trying to get escape into something bigger and better and, and more kind of um inclusive of, of it all in this random human attempt of fumbling <laughs> through life which isn't all that bad sir okay in fairness listen i didn't <laughs> say it was terrible i just said it was deeply deeply unfair which it is. Um, but listen, Anthony, thanks a million for um, taking the time, spending your Saturday morning with us. Uh, this will be coming out to you on Halloween, where we will be at Puka Festival in Drogheda. Uh, a helicopter has decided to hover over my house for about the last 10 minutes. Wow. So I apologize for the noise. I don't know how much of that is coming through, but it's certainly annoying me. Um, so listen, thank you so much for joining us. Well, hopefully we'll have more conversations in the future. We'd love to do and this again. Absolutely. Anthony. Um... Oh, Aaron went. Absolutely grey. It, it would appear the little folk are interfering because you've got helicopters and he's gone blank. He's, he's gone. You know what? I think 
I think we might have to call it there. I think I think we're getting <laughs> I think we're getting messages from the other world. There's the helicopters, yeah, there's the great cameras. Oh um, my God. But listen, thank you so much, and thanks so much to everybody who's listening. And go and check out Mythical Ireland. And Anthony, uh, do you have anything you want to um, plug or your new book? You oh, it, yeah, I just say t- two things that um, at the time this is going out, I'll just be on the verge. I think I'll have printed copies of the 2022 Mythical Ireland calendar, and also the revised expanded edition of mythical ireland uh, is uh, due to be released in november uh, so both of those can be purchased on mythicalireland.com just go into the gallery and shop and uh, go into the uh, section brilliant. like books and calendars and you'll see them there. brilliant we'll have uh, in the description below and we'll be pop- popping all that in, into it thanks Mill anthony and uh, thanks so much yeah, listen i hope you have a good sewing everyone